teachings that have been passed down through the ages, still available to us for our practice and benefit, and all of the members of the Sangha who have awakened and gained great benefit in these teachings over time, over the past 25, going on 26 centuries, including everyone who is waking up, whether gradually or suddenly uh, in these teachings, with these teachings, with the blessing and benefit of the practice of these teachings and the Dhamma today, at this time, in this time, in our very generation, amongst us. So today I've been asked to speak about gradual and sudden awakening. And uh, this is a topic that brings a lot of joy to my heart to think about. Because when I think about awakening, whether sudden or whether gradual, uh, just the the thought of it uh, brings me quite a lot of joy. Earlier in my monastic life, in my early monastic life, then I heard this expression, uh, gradual awakening, sudden awakening. Uh, Even I heard gradual awakening, sudden awakening, then after sudden awakening, then further gradual practice. Uh, So I heard these expressions, and there were those who debated even between gradual awakening and sudden awakening which is superior, which is the supreme way, which is the supreme course of practice, what should one be striving for? There were these kinds of questions and debates sometimes, even as I stayed with those practicing Zen or Chan or Sun meditation, sometimes these debates would be strong and intense and have been going on for even for a very long uh, period of time. Uh, passed down through the history of a Buddhist school. What an amazing and wonderful thing to debate about, of all things in in this world. When I uh, began to study the new English translations of the Nikayas, the collected discourses of the Buddha, 
the long discourses of the Buddha, and then the Majjhimanikaya, the, uh, the middle-length discourses of the Buddha, good contemporary English translations by those who were practitioners, who had the base of real knowledge and practice together with deep study uh, behind their translations. Uh, then this started to become more clear from uh, the early Buddhist teachings that we believe to be from the Buddha himself, to have been passed down from the Buddha himself. I want to tell you a little bit of a story. Uh, Once upon a time, I lived in a mountain forest hermitage north of Jenner on the Sonoma coast. There were rugged cliffs, crashing waves, tall and towering redwoods, regrown out of the forest, rescue forest that had been saved uh, from being logged by one great lady with compassion in her heart who wished that that forest be able to regrow and be a place of refuge for women and for men to come to be able to practice meditation and awakening in the Dhamma. This lady herself uh, went down to meditate by the rugged, rocky uh, mountain creek flowing down in the gulch, down into the ocean. She went down to sit on the great rocks to meditate by the creek for hours upon hours and days upon days and weeks upon weeks. And then just being with nature, uh, immersed in nature without anyone else to see her, without her being able to look at anyone else, uh, her heart started to be able to open in a kind of raw awareness, uncovered or bare awareness of the natural elements, internal and external of this body and mind. And she felt she gained a glimpse of the Dhamma in this uh, bare, raw, magnificent and uncovered, unveiled. And so she named the creek Dharma Creek because she felt that that experience itself uh, was the great Dhamma teaching, that all of nature and everything of body and mind, when allowed to, became the, like the, the creek became the voice of the suttas, and the shining of the stars, and the towering of the redwoods, and the bones, and the flesh, and the blood in her body, and the hair, nails, teeth, and skin, all of that. Uh, became the suttas and the teaching of the Dhamma, the Buddha's voice uh, echoing in her heart throughout every fiber of her being. And she was amazed and she was awed and she felt that she was awakening. Out of great gratitude then, she wished that others might be able to experience similarly especially women who might, like men do too, sometimes unknowingly hold fear 
judgments, self-consciousness so strongly that it consumes our minds, consumes our hearts and is with us in each waking moment of the day, internalized uh, judgments and self-consciousness, discriminations from morning until night or whenever we wake up and, and go to sleep. These programs always there and running and occupying immense energy and effort and time. And with the releasing, with the relaxing of these, what it is to see the world clearly through the lens that is not obscured and convoluted and contracted and covered over by these things. She invited to share the space. I went there for a retreat. I had heard on that creek that upstream there is a great waterfall, a large pool made as the rocks and uh, the logs that weren't carried away by the loggers crashed down in the strong winter rains that there was a great pool and there a waterfall beautiful place to go and meditate so I set out in the direction that I'd been pointed first it seemed like there was a little bit of a path and then the path seemed to disappear and made my way through uh, branches and rocks stepping up, stepping down walking through the waters of the creek sometimes I would step up on a high rock and I would get a view of the majestic surroundings look up at the redwoods towering high above look down into the clear water below sometime I came to a small pool and wondered is this it? is this the pool? the spot Then I thought, it's lovely and beautiful, but surely not quite as it was described. And then I got up and continued to make my way up and down over rocks and logs, down into the water and up again, until I came up to a high place had to climb up on the embankment, push my way through the trees on the side, opening the branches, coming out on the other side at the edge of a cliff, and there was a pool. The big, wide, deep pool. With waterfall flowing out below
and I thought, this is it. This must be the space. Did I find it suddenly or gradually? Yes. <laughs> Thank you. End of talk. <laughs> We're done. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> no more than that, really. <laughs> but then afterwards, then I had to go to her and ask. This is what it was like. I went here, I went there, I came to this one, I came to that one, then I came to this very big one after such and such a distance and described it like that. And is that it? Is that the one? Is that the one that you told me about? The special pool, the special space. I had stayed there for a while. It was a nice spot. I don't know if it was actually any better than any of the other spots. <laughs> but certainly it was bigger. And it was a nice spot. But um, this type of analogy is one that I've heard in teaching uh, to describe the harmony or the union in a way. This is the language that was used for the gradual and the sudden. How the the... What is it? There's always the suddenness of experience in, uh, in what is uh, present. Uh, and yet our practice is gradual and ongoing. And it is that gradual and ongoing that then leads to whatever uh, sudden experience where we, we turn the corner and we stub our toe, we crash into something. Some of the stories of the ancient Zen masters of their, their sudden awakening was like that. They're out walking, walking on the path and been practicing intensely for how long and really dedicatedly and even like not, seems like not getting anywhere, working with the practice and working and working with it and working with it. And how many years have I been a monk now and I haven't, haven't really broken through to anything extremely subtle and fantastic and supre- supreme. Sure, there have been the nice times and stages, but, you know, and am I doing something wrong? But then going back and working, working, working with it, working with it again and again and again, day after day, from morning until night, working, working with it. Coming out for the walking meditation outside, walking along the path with its pebbles, looking up at the sky as a bird passes, hitting one's foot, stubbing one's toe on the unseen rock, and ouch! And then, the mind breaking open. Such wonderful stories are there. Such beautiful stories are there. From real life experience. Zen poems passed down to us. Someone telling what, what they experienced. What was it like? In the Terigata, the verses of the women elders, the uh, ancient bhikkhunis, uh, Bhikkhuni disciples of the Buddha from the Buddha's lifetime. Some of them expressed 
like Indian people wash feet, they went barefoot much of the time, then coming in, sitting down, pouring the foot washing water, while pouring the foot washing water, watching that stream of water as it flowed away, and suddenly the great dark was torn apart, she said. And there was no more coming further to any, what is it, to any further state of being. What needed to be done had been done. Katang karaniya. And then she said, now, wandering for alms, I live debt-free. Who gave a piece of cloth to me, got great merit. She said, the awakened one. Yeah. Free. Another one begins. Free at last. Free from, then she lists the various things that had tied and bound her heart, her relationship, her cooking. Free at last from mortar and pestle. Free from my husband. (laughs) There are men's verses like this also. (laughs) There is a parallel, Teragata. Not only a teri gata, verses of the male elders as well as the verses of the female elders. But I really love how it begins free, free at last, free from all the things that tied and bound me. But she doesn't describe anything that truly externally tied and bound her, but rather is the bondage of her own way of relating, her own way of seeing and knowing those things, her relationship her relationship with those things. And when that relationship then shifted unchanged, utterly, deeply, then free. Yes? Surely, cooking hasn't vanished from the world, it still exists. But her relationship with it, her way of seeing and knowing it, what it was to her or wasn't to her, there was the big, the big shift, the big change. Yes? So, when I meet together with those who are practicing in different schools or different traditions of Buddhism, there's often a question about this. I've heard from those who are practicing Zen, sometimes a question. Sometimes someone has a, what is it, a kensho, seeing the nature, seeing the Dhamma uh, experience, which is a great shift, a great opening. They feel, they know that's different. And then, like I went to talk to the lady who had meditated on the creek, told me where the pool was. I went to ask her, was it like this? Was it like that? Is this the spot? Then they go to talk to the teacher and and say, you know, my experience is like this. Like what? Like this. <laughs> and explaining it. Is it genuine? Is it authentic? Is it real? It's real. It's real. (laughs) Is it real? Yes, it's real. Uh, And uh, then the acknowledgement uh, of that, because there are the characteristics, there are the characteristics that can be uh, communicated in these experiences that we can know not only ourselves but with each other. 
uh, in the how one naturally describes their experience. The thing to look out for, in fact, is the fabrications. Somebody speaking as if they're speaking out of a book, as if the mind has has heard or read something and then made something made something up, tried to make something up, tried to make it be like that. Yeah? Which, when we desire something very strongly, sometimes we can do that. It's we take everything that we know about it and then we, it's like we really want it, we really wish for it. If we think about it hard enough, maybe we can make it come into being. Uh, but often the characteristic of these experiences is, is not like that. Uh, not planned, not programmed, not generally not expected. Often not like, I know Ajahn Amaro used to come to this group regularly, and I really love him talking. He told the story of the perfect night, <laughs> the night, the night that it was going to happen. I love this story. <laughs> Everything is perfect. I've got my meditation cushion just right, and, and you know, there's... there's no car sound. It's the full moon, right? <laughs> everything is perfect. Everything is just right. Surely tonight's the night. It's going to be it. <laughs> like this. And, and yet so often, so often, it's, it's not when we think it's going to be or how we think it's going to be. The things that we think, you know, I've really got to control this, I've got to end this, I've got to get out of this, it's definitely something else, and really just trying to work, work with it, and thinking it's not the ideal, it's not the best, it's not the most wonderful, it's not the most perfect. Sometimes, in fact, it seems like the worst and the hardest and the most difficult, the most hard to go through, to bear, to see, to whatever it may be, just to be alive with. And yet there, in that, engaging with it, struggling, climbing, bumped and bruised up that high, tall rock, scratched on the face by the piece of wood, and, and there, <laughs> covered with dirt and muck and dust, then turning the corner and, ah, oh, when one least expected it. Surely the pool must not be there anymore. It must have moved this year. The logs moved, the creek moved, I've come all this way. Maybe I'm not even on the property anymore. I must have gone a hundred acres. <laughs> and then turning the corner and, oh, there it is. Wow. Yes? So, not always expected, often unexpected, often in the times and the circumstances that weren't what we thought was just right or just perfect. But it doesn't mean that all that effort that went in before wasn't valuable, wasn't a part of that happening, does it? For the creek walk, if I hadn't done the walk, would I have gotten there? I could have just said, beam me in. (laughs) I needed to walk. I needed to go through all of that. All of that was exactly the effort uh, that was being rightly applied, going in the right direction, as had been pointed out. I didn't wander off to anything else. There were other beautiful things that I could have gone off to. Oh, it's lovely. What is it? 
fragrant wild mountain azaleas up in the hillside in a, a place that looked like a peaceful glade. Why don't I just stop and sit there? And I could have done so and enjoyed that if I had done that maybe I would have come back another time and tried again or maybe I would have just settled with enjoying that uh, lovely glade with the wild mountain azaleas and never never gone on uh, to the pool and then I would just wonder in the back of my mind is it there? does it still exist? what must it be like? hmm I wonder. Yeah? So, I would like, because I heard that this was a subject that some of you had interest in, for those who had interest, for those who may have requested, uh, I would like to welcome your questions. It's a talk, many other things I think I could talk for hours and hours about, and this one I feel actually is very short and simple. Very, very easy. <laughs> oh, but I was telling you about Zen teachers. And then, okay, so I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to dump on Zen teachers at all, but there have been a number of occurrences where someone who had Kensho and had this experience of seeing the nature, seeing the Dhamma, and then afterwards someone else observed, they still seem to like chocolate cake. What's going on with that in Awakened One? Hmm... <laughs> Was it a real experience? Or, they seem grouchy this morning, <laughs> their spouse says. <laughs> Someone who's had Kensho, can they be grouchy in the morning? Or, they get lost driving somewhere. Can someone who's had Kensho be confused? Yeah? Can they, can they get lost along the way going somewhere like this? Forget their or, appointment. Forget their appointment, right? All these are great, wonderful questions. And sometimes people see that and then they doubt the truth of the experience. Think, is that right? Is that true? Or did they just, have we lost the path? And, and these people who think they're having these experiences these days, it's actually something else? Or, or what's, what's going on with that? But in that tradition, I know, the Kensho may be one stage, and then successive Kenshos is the old, old tradition. Whether they happen all at once, like, uh, what is it, when the uh, dominoes just fall, and then they just, one after another, like that, or whether slowly, over time, over years, and then coming to Satori. Uh, what is Satori in Chinese? Satori. Satori. Japanese. That's Japanese. What would it be in Chinese? Um. Now, in uh, I studied Korean before, and the same words are there, but pronounced differently. So, Kensho is Kyansang, means seeing the nature. And then we had Daegak, means great awakening. We have Samadhi. Huh? Samadhi. Samadhi. No, I don't mean Samadhi. I'm not sure what you mean. Great final Final awakening. Samyak Sambodhi normally used for the Buddha. But Bodhi, yes. Certainly Bodhi. Bodhi. Yes. Uh, so, 
was called in the, maybe I have to put, if, if, if I write Chinese, will you read it? Big, great? Yeah, da. Uh-huh. Okay, da, and then the next word's awakening. Uh, jiao. Jiao. Jiao's awakening. Jiao. Mm, I'm thinking of a different word than that. Jiao, does jiao mean like great great light, great brightness, great clarity? It means awakening. Awakening, okay. Uh, yeah, so also, in the early Buddhist teaching, uh, this first experience of seeing the Dhamma often called stream entry, entering the stream, which is why I like to use a stream story, a Greek story. (laughs) Uh, Plunging in, plunging into the Dhamma, seeing seeing the Dhamma, stream entry, uh, really getting one's feet wet, knowing the touch, the taste, the feel of the water for oneself in truth, in actuality. Yes, and really feeling the refreshment of that, knowing the clarity uh, of it, and then that's something that also changes one permanently. It means you're not not going to just go back and be utterly the same again afterwards, which is true for any real deep insight, any real deep uh, realization that any of us have. Most people who have even one seven-day retreat, even it's very difficult and they struggle a lot with it and it's hard to do, mostly they'll have actually some shift where the torturousness of it and the ongoing painfulness and difficulty of being with the stuff of body and mind hour after hour, minute after minute, second after second, day after day, um, where there's a, a, a big shift and an opening and a spaciousness and a clarity and one sees and realizes things in a different way, you know, things that are true and actual. And then even later on in life, if one is reminded again, one will still be able to remember it. Even when memory fails, this is one thing that will still be remembered. So you might have forgotten your daughter's name. (laughs) You might have forgotten your husband's name. You might have forgotten your own name even. But, uh, or various things like where you went to school, or none of that may be important at that time. Forgot about all of it, and yet what was realized then, that part may still remain clear. It's a different kind of sati, a different kind of of mindfulness or memory uh, and, and clear awareness than the type of memory that we use for other kinds of things, yes? Uh, our systems as human beings hold these experiences differently. Yeah? And it's a different, definitely a distinctive thing that's happening. Now, for science, I know we start to see, oh, what's going on with the brain? Wow, that person looks like they're the happiest person in the world. <laughs> All their happiness centers are turned on. Uh, and so many more pathways of neuroconnectivity and, and all of this kind of thing. Like all the lights are on, can go on, and, and, and this. Um, 
So what a fascination and, and interest we have to read uh, about these things, and yet we can experience for ourselves. Yes, this human body is wired for, made for these kinds of experiences. We're built for it, and yet so many people may never, never have such an experience in their whole life because what turns on those potentialities, those capabilities in us that we have built in is not activated. Not activated and not, not developed in a way that develops and develops and develops the capabilities of the body and mind until they come to that tipping point of being so fully like pouring water into the cup and pouring water into the cup and pouring water into the cup. Is it wasted effort or is the cup going to get full? If you have a solid cup. Now if your cup has holes in it, this is the thing. If your cup has holes in it, you can be pouring in water and pouring in water and it will just be, you can go and water your garden with it. You'll have a watering can, yes? The water will just all come out again. So not only is there the effort in putting in, but also how to, uh, how to hold what is valuable, what's worthy, uh, how to heal the cracks the development of the integrity of the mind, the integrity of the path of practice that then makes it so this cup is whole, it does have continence, and what you're pouring into it, pouring into it, can accumulate. It's not just flowing out and flowing away into this, that, and the other thing that might be of highly negligible value to you, really, and finally, and yet you're frittering away your life's energy, your life's blood, the water, of your life and heart on it. I don't mean that any of you are actually doing that, but sometimes people do and then feel, oh, that's so sorry. Your life has such value. How to know that and then keep that integrity and not to waste your life's energy and efforts on the things that are of no meaning and no value, but how to hold, how to, how to keep in the name that you heard from Elise, about the name of our support foundation and our sankha, you might have recognized the word dhamma in it, in the beginning. First word, dhamma. There's another word, dhara. Dhara. Dhara is a stream, it flows, but it's also the embankment. How can there be the same word for both the stream and what holds the stream? So dhara is often translated as to hold. To hold, to hold, pamadara, to hold the dhamma, or to uphold. In this case, uphold means to keep with integrity, to keep with clarity, purity, dignity, a sense of nobleness, uh, true humanity. Uh, to, to hold, to keep that with integrity. And the last word on the end, in our case, as we're embodied, female embodiment, ni means female. Uh, so this is specifically women who are holding or upholding the Dhamma uh, as a flowing, streaming uh, reality, yet one that, that can be held, as we were talking about, holding the, the space, the integrity of the space uh, together here. This is being held, this time and space is being held by intention, 
for all of us together. We've given that to each other in dedication. And the integrity of our practice in our own body and mind, opening up and holding, not in a tight, narrow, attached way, but the open holding, the free holding of the time, the space, the clarity, the good means and methods of the practice that enable, that make the container for awakening and awareness, or awareness and awakening uh, to happen. Which comes first, awareness or awakening? Kind of a joke. Um, It's an old joke from the uh, also from the Chan, from the Chan circles, saying that after awakening, then one can truly practice. But you have to practice a lot to get there. <laughs> so <laughs> build up all those causes and conditions for that to happen. But it's true. Uh, with the realizations that we have, then we can practice on another level. We can practice on a whole other level. It doesn't mean if that was like a real, true, deep, true initial awakening experience, seeing nature, seeing the Dhamma, really transformed us and changed us, that never going to feel a pull for the chocolate cake, or not going to ever feel a little bit irritable again, or not going to... uh, uh, not not know how to get to Yoga Mendocino or <laughs> this kind of thing. Doesn't mean any of those things. All very normal. But, according to the teaching, what will no longer happen at that time is going to hell. In this case, I don't mean going to hell after death. I mean hell in human life. I don't mean any, anything about whether that can happen after death or not. According to the Buddhist teaching, we wouldn't go to hell after death if, if, if this would happen. But I want to talk right now about, about going to hell in human life. So, very nice, very good people, when pushed too hard, can get pushed over the edge and they go to hell. Whether it's from desire making them crazy, or whether it's fear making them crazy, or whether it's grief making them crazy, or whether it's hatred, someone doing something that they just dislike, it just pushed their buttons, like war. I'm talking about the kind of, the the things that are the strong experiences for people. Uh, One of my friends, uh, her sister is incarcerated for life in the women's prison down south of here in Chowchilla. She is a good lady, grew up, seemed like grew up well, okay? And she got married to a nice guy and had two children. And one day, uh, she got a call from a friend. She was sitting in her office at work and she got a call from a friend who told her, I just saw your husband entering the hotel room here. at at my hotel where I work with another woman. And something changed in her. 
and she went back home and going back home she had this thought if he is with another woman I'll kill him how can he do that to me how can he do that to us we have children we have a life together we, I thought we had trust between us and thinking like that almost without knowing what she was doing she went over to the kitchen counter and she opened up the drawer and she took out a knife and she put it in her purse and then she went to the hotel and she found out what room they were in and she went to the room and she knocked on the door she opened the door and then after that she didn't know what happened very sad and terrible story because then later the police came and there was blood everywhere and she slashed oh so terrible so terrible like she went to hell she went crazy awful 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 story these things happen oh my goodness the circumstance some kind of circumstance happens and and then the people who are otherwise otherwise good otherwise okay the very strong thing happens and then then like this and now now she's in prison and the kids have to live with the other growing up with the other family members and she's not going to be able to get out of prison for the rest of her life as far as we know, so, oh dear, then this kind of story, then like trembling inside, I feel scared. Uh, it's really, really scary and, and awful that that could happen like that, yeah? So terrible. So this is the kind of thing, according to the Buddha's early classical traditional teaching, that when the particular level of integrity and clarity uh, is established in a person's mind based upon truth, based upon what is true and real, and really seeing and knowing what is true, that can no longer happen uh, to that person again. They are safe from that. And in themselves, they know a deep level of fearlessness. We don't realize how much underlying fear programs are there running, 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 taking so much energy. And we we don't see it because it's just there all the time and just running and running. And yet, with this type of experience, then that fear can open and the person can feel a deep sense of security and safety. and know that established in in themselves. Maybe a side effect. And according to the Buddha's teaching, then such a one, yes, they might have craving for chocolate cake, and they can practice with that over time. They might get grouchy or grumpy, but they're not going to go and do this kind of means like going, the kind of going to hell kind of action like this. Um, not, not going to go over the line in that kind of way because deep, deep 
level of clear perception of actuality and reality that transcends self and other, that gets down deeper than that level of fear, which had been supported by ignorance, because there isn't that level of ignorance anymore to support it. So its effect, that fear, is gone. Yeah. So still they might get lost going somewhere, but not going to get lost as in spiritually lost, like the kind that makes people commit suicide or at its extreme, or will make them kill one another as religious fanatics, or will make them just feel such a deep doubt about what is true, what is real. Is it this teaching or that teaching or the other teaching? Is there anything real? Does anyone really know it all? Is there anything that's real? Does it make any difference? This kind of insidious underlying doubt that can be there and also be a program that's there and and running that pulls down uh, the energy because it just, it, it takes so much time and energy to, to, to think about these things or to feel them, yeah? That part, clear. That part, easy. So these are the, some of the classical characteristics of such an experience. And with further experience and further practice, then these things only deepening. But the part about the aversion normally lessens more quickly. Confusion progressively uh, decreases. Non-clarity progressively decreases. The, the desire for things often is one of the last things to go. And this is one of the things that we think about as, as actually we think about as most doubtful. If they really had an awakening experience, why are they still interested in sensuality? Yeah? Maybe it doesn't seem like really, really grossly so like some people, but still, you know, I thought that monk or that Dhamma teacher is like, is, is it real that they've had this experience if they still have a preference between chocolate and lemon meringue? <laughs> or whatever whatever it may be like this. And I just want to tell you, according to the early Buddhist teachings, classically, can certainly, can be perfectly normal, perfectly all right. They may still have a spouse. They may still, what is it, procreate. Um, all of these kinds of things, can, they can still, they can still do that. Yeah? Uh, likely, they're not going to, uh, when the mosquito comes to their face, they're not going to splat. Um, likely not. No. Uh, but someone saying something like, I don't like she set up my seat on this side. Last time I sat on the other side. What does it mean? <laughs> grouch, little little grouch, grouch, grump. Ah, I spilled water on my robe. Oh, it's wet. <sighs> Actually, can still do. Might not be really bad, though. You're not going to kill anybody over it. 
yeah? Not going to get really badly upset about it, but a little bit, a little bit irritated? Might be, might be, but different, unique for everyone and progressively developing. Finally, last things to go. Do you know what the last things to go are? Right. Yeah. And this is another big one that people think, how, if they're exhibiting pride, how can they have had a genuine spiritual experience? Yeah? Such a reasonable question. We don't think, according to the classical early Buddhist teaching, pride is supposed to be the last thing. Pride, conceit, yes, can be reduced. Can be reduced, certainly. And a particular kind of pride, a particular kind of self-view, like kind of absolute self-view, particularly related to the, like the thought, I am this body. This body is me. This body is what I, what I am. Or ideas about uh, like permanent, lasting satisfaction and self-ownership in anything. Those <coughs> normally quite cut down. Seen through. Seen through. Yeah? Interesting? I find that very interesting. But still, other kind of pride, other kind of conceit may be there. Kind of desire for becoming also. Even subtle. Like, oh, some heavenly enjoyment wouldn't be bad. <laughs> Liking to further enjoy yeah, uh, not a hundred percent satisfied and content. Not a hundred percent, and their work isn't a hundred percent done. So also, in a way, that seems right. Not a hundred percent done, so not a hundred percent satisfied. Hundred percent done, then a hundred percent done. Can be completely satisfied and content. Don't feel like one needs anything more at all. Nothing more that needs to be done to be that one couldn't, if something were different, I could be happier. It could be better. It could be better than this. Right? What do you think? Can it get any better than this? It's such a trick question, isn't it? (laughs) Well, definitely, if I were different, (laughs) if things were different, if I were different, if I weren't me, if the world were different, different, certainly it would be better, right? If people were different. If if only people were different. (laughs) If only the human beings were different. If only the animals were different. If only the environmental situation were different. If only what else? If only, if only. That's the craving, craving, subtle desire and aversion in the mind that won't, doesn't recognize that this now, right now, is all that exists. (laughs) Nothing more. This is it. This is eternally true. Uh, Not quite 
not quite getting that. And No, I know I'm going to go home. I'm going to lie down. My back is going to feel better. That's going to be better. <laughs> and then I'm going to think about this and I'm going to understand it more deeply and then it's really going to be better. <laughs> and after I've meditated a lot more, then definitely it's going to be much better. Ah, so it's not that uh, cause and effect stops working. It's not that... Uh, that we can't behave wisely, make clear choices, knowing cause and effect, not that. But that subtle and insidious thinking that the grass is greener on the other side, not where I'm at right now. That one, that one. Do any of you know that one? I know that one well. If I were different, if the world were different, after this, after that, after the other thing, then maybe, then maybe, then maybe, over the next horizon, over the next horizon, and always the next horizon. And with that mind, do we ever actually get there? But stopping, becoming present, waking up, here and now, where we're at right now with the truth, the deepest and highest of religious truths, here, right now, present in this very experience. Can you feel your mind trying to open? (laughs) In the body, in the brain? Oh, what is that? What does that mean? What is that? Can you sit with that? And allow that opening to happen, to unfold, just to let it happen, to invite, to welcome that that it happen, to give the time, the space for that to be possible. And to see and know it as it happens, as it unfolds. What would an awakening experience be after all if you missed it? (laughs) If you weren't there, I was distracted. I was checking my email. I'm sorry, what did you say? (laughs) Hold on, let me scroll back. (laughs) Did I miss something here? (laughs) What are they laughing about? We need to be there for it. (laughs) Which comes first, the awareness or the awakening? (laughs) Mm. Yes? I do the same thing. As the question is like, is path goal? (laughs) Is the goal the path? Is the path the goal? Is the goal anywhere else? There's the great thing. I gave this analogy that is involving space. And that can be the great fallacy of it, like the story of over the next rock, over the next mountain. In this case, no, no space. It's right, right here and never anywhere else. The question is, can we be with it? Can we see and know it? Can we 
can we be, can we allow the process and see and know it for what it is as long as the mind is stretching out like the mountain climber with their, what's it called, the long thing that has the hooks on the end that you throw up to catch the cliff and then pull yourself up? Grappling hook. Grappling hook, there you go. Grappling hooks, we got them. How we throw them out into the other thing, the next thing, and then try to pull ourselves through time and space towards that thing. It's a lot of stress, it's a lot of effort to do that. And also to feel when one could just be with, in fact, is it with now? And yet, going for it, going for it, going for it. You have to like, going for it, going for it, going for it. Within, 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 here and now, here and now, within, within, here and now. This is where I go for it, opening it up within, here and now. Can you touch on this subject? Um, Someone that has uh, lost a very dear one, has died, and they're in grief. So you just touched on being present in that state where you're in terrible pain. I'm not talking about myself. Yes. But but in in pain. And that's all. That's where you are. Yeah. This is it. Yes. This is this is the awakening right now. But how is just can you say? Well, it's not necessarily the awakening right then. If someone is trying to get away from it, or they're trying to numb themselves, or dull themselves, or they're hearing, they're trying to get over it, they're trying to move on to the next thing. they feel just not, for whatever reason, not able, not having the resources to be able to be present with what's being felt and to see and know and to be with it, then that may not be an awakening experience for them. It may be all those other things. It may be numbing and dulling and escaping and getting away and living partially half, you know, on the surface, kind of skimming on the, on the surface of, of whatever, feeling shallow, superficial, Uh, separated, divided, apart from where the heart is really at. It may be all those things because that's what's really going on. Yeah. But if one is able to be with the experience as it is, whether it's grief or whether it's something else, there is an opportunity in that. So this is a process. A process. And the seeing and knowing in it, the being present and, and seeing and knowing, the being present uh, engenders a kind of a, a wholeness. And that wholeness is the, uh, I'm just using wholeness as language, that wholeness is the antithesis of being scattered, being separated, being isolated. It's the antithesis of that. The presence is the antithesis of being unseen, unknown. The awareness is the antithesis of the not knowing, which is ignorance, which fuels and 
Thank you. That's important for us. So, ignorance can be like a ground out of which many other things can grow. And if that soil is not there, if that ground is not there, then that the growth of those things, many other kinds of things, whether they're greed or whether they're confusion or whether they're doubt or whether they're fear or whether they're just lots of pain, um, all of those things grow out of that ground of ignorance. And the seeing and knowing uh, we think ground, we think earth, but in this case, maybe think of it as just a, like a, a kind of a dark, dark layer that one can't see through and out of which lots of other stuff, in which lots of other stuff can be hidden and then can, can grow out of. So that, that light of awareness, clarity of awareness, when there is light of awareness and clarity of awareness, when there is seeing and knowing, ignorance is less in that situation. Ignorance is reduced and lessened by it. As much as the ignorance is reduced and lessened, the ability of other unhealthy things to grow up out of it and to take over, proliferate and take over in the space of our hearts, our minds, our bodies and minds, is reduced, lessened, and eliminated. This is the deep, great, great benefit uh, in, in this practice. It's practically miraculous for how simple it is to actually cultivate and, or allow, give the conditions that allow awareness to grow and become stronger. And those benefits then don't have to be fabricated. They come with. So as there is greater seeing and knowing, as there is greater light and clarity, ignorance is reduced and lessened. And thank you. That's what the time, the chime meant. So I think that's a good place to close. And with, I think with gratitude for the space that this is, which is exactly for this purpose, you know, to give us the support, uh, the resources, and to, to support by showing up, uh, to support this space being here for not only ourselves, but, but each other. So this is an offering that all of us have made uh, to each other uh, this evening. And a beautiful offering of this space. So I want to thank uh, I want to thank everybody who is a part of this dedication and uh, and making it possible, and uh, everyone for showing up and what you've uh, what you've contributed to it. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit 
dharmaseed.org slash donate.